So I've been deep in contemplation. I've purified myself, both physically and spiritually, only eating from dusk until dawn. And in the last couple of days, I haven't eaten at all. I've studied the murmurations of birds, the four winds, the nameless wind. I've consulted with the divine. I've sealed squares and triptychs. I have touched the face of God. And I can tell you that Amber Rudd is secure in her position and a possible leadership candidate. Hello, welcome to We Don't Talk About the Weather, political discussion that from the outside may just look like screaming and crying. I'm Adam and this is Hugh. <laughs> and we're here to talk about news and politics of the day, of the week. And what a week. Amber Rudd, gone. I'm glad she's gone. I'm really glad that she's leaking information to try and get rid of the government <laughs> because she's annoyed at that. Um Hold on, she's... hold on. A self seeking individual like fame seeking Tory. <laughs> Um, I know I should be expecting more for a woman who chose to be the MP for Hastings because it was within travelling distance of London and because they could win it. That was her quote. That was <laughs> yeah. her thing that she said. Um, oh God, she's terrible, and she's a terrible person. Oh, um, I was the... looking forward to the, at the next election to seeing her fucking bricking it again. Well, she will for seventeen hours while she demands thirty-eight she, recaps. She will brick it because she's gonna. I really hope she loses a seat. Yeah, but it won't be as sweet when she's no, not when, secretary. Yeah, that's a good point. Um, I don't know where Sajid Javid is MP for. Um, one of the circles of hell. It's all that figure. It's all Theresa May. Um, yeah, well, I didn't. I didn't May. think it's she... all Theresa May because. There is someone who has been getting a lot of attention, but she should be getting it for a different reason, because it's not just a reason, mate. It is Yvette Cooper and the rest of the Blairite pieces of shit who started all this shit. Uh, yeah, you know, like Labour leader Yvette Cooper. <laughs> um, she's really refreshed the party. Uh, I saw that. If, if you see during the last election, um, Jeremy Corbyn did terribly, but Yvette Cooper did really, really well. Oh, she well. did. That's why she was leader of the Labour Party. Um, um, it's... Oh, God, she just it makes my skin crawl. The people talking about... We had a glimpse of the Labour Party that we could be having. And the it's Labour like, Party that they want. Yeah, it's like, I hate you all. This debate wouldn't be happening. It's like, how... It wouldn't have been happening. People, like... I get really annoyed with the media, obviously. Uh, as evidenced by every single episode of this podcast. Yeah. But at some point, nobody seems to notice that the thing that she supposed... Oh, she's really nailing people on, like, the Windrush scandal and immigration. That she voted for all of it. They she is absolutely they complicit. Because the media is 100% like commentators in a wrestling match. It doesn't matter if they miss the move. Yeah, but... It's, it, they, their point, the point of the commentator is to make that person seem dominant. But wrestling commentators have a face and a heel commentator. No, we just have heel commentators. <laughs> that's all we have. We, that's literally all we have. We just have... Our entire media class is Jerry Lawler. <laughs> And, you know, with the amount of sexual abuse that goes on in it. Yeah. Um, yeah, allegedly. just... Well, allegedly. <laughs> what, with Jerry Lawler? Yeah. Is it allegedly? Oh, yeah. Okay, yeah. For the purposes of this podcast, it's allegedly. <laughs> allegedly. <laughs> allegedly. Um, yeah, so it's... It, oh, it just annoys me. All of it has annoyed me. I'm really glad that, um, that they... It's that as well. I'm really glad they got their scalp. 
and got rid of Amber Rudd. But realistically, it stinks, it's getting rid of one monster to replace with another monster because the Tories are all monsters. It stinks of like Westminsterism as well. It's like, yes, we got her. And it's yeah. like, they'll just replace her with someone else and yeah. someone worse. Yeah. In this case, yes. The man who... Ayn Rand, like the in, Ayn Rand enthusiast Saji Javid. The one who a week before referred to Momentum as neo-fascists. Yeah. No, he's just... Oh, it's just horrible. A fully prepared culture warrior. Mm, mm. At least Amber Rudd was kind of grey and boring. Yeah, well, um, it's that lovely picture, the Tory Instagram from the from the, um, from their conference mm. where she was like, sort of, like the, the pose that she had with her little plastic cup of wine looking like the mum at a birthday party. It's just <laughs> there. So, you know, she had that going for her that she, she seemed like she'd probably be all right at a friend's party when the mum hangs around too long that she'd probably get a bit drunk and say something really inappropriate before leaving. <laughs> Unfortunately, because Amber Rudd will be something inappropriate about the race of one of your friends. <laughs> um, and then she'd try to, to just deport them. <laughs> yeah, it, there was the kind of fucking position worship as mm-hmm. well of Amber Rudd. Like Lisa Nandy... <sighs> Uh, said something on Twitter, too many people gleefully celebrating the Home Secretary's resignation are doing us no favours. I don't know who us are, Mm. but inhumanity creates a destructive, sour political culture that spills over into policy and makes victims of the powerless, including migrants. It offers no future for them or the left. I've got news for you, Lisa. A sour, destructive culture is literally what caused this Windrush scandal (laughs) and the immigration climate in general. Is she Angela Nageling of, like, blaming the Tories utter... (laughs) monstrousness on like essentially us tumbler teens <laughs> listen i can't imagine i cannot imagine the horror of slipping into an easy seat <laughs> getting paid extra to essentially continue the uh, legacy of my boss who's now the prime minister yeah who was also my predecessor um, and then having to leave that job and just be an MP on 70-whatever grand a year. Yeah. It's incredibly difficult. The loss she must be feeling. Those seats are really uncomfortable in the House of yeah. Commons. I don't think you understand. They make and them sometimes, sometimes they even have to turn up <laughs> and sit on those seats. It is horrifying. Have you seen PMQs? That thing goes on for like over an hour and they have to be there. Then they get to leave. Sometimes they get to leave pretty quickly. Um, but yeah, it's fucking horrible. It's the whole idea that um, oh, we need to be respectful. We need to show how oh, grown up that. we are. Yeah, no. it's like oh, well, this inhuman inhumanity creates a destructive, sour political culture, and it's like you're creating a destructive political culture because you're not calling out evil when you yeah. see it. Yeah, just because she got dethroned for you know basically presiding over an immigration Lubyanka Yeah, doesn't mean that we can't all be civil. <laughs> yeah, it's. Yeah, oh, it's obey the rules. Yeah. And it's that thing of like... Um, obey the rules and you'll get rewarded. It's like with um, with things like Tony Benn being friends with Enoch Powell said he wasn't a racist. I don't, know, part, I don't know that he was friends, friends with Enoch Powell. Being, well, acquaintances, enough to say hi, because all of them are part of the club. It's mm. that thing. It just it reminds you again that they're all part of the club. They all, you know, they drink in the same places, they go to the same parties, they all, you know like each other they're the big people and you're the little people yeah 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 um speaking of big people and little people hmm. that's not a good segue okay local election local elections <laughs> yeah so the local elections they're tomorrow up. um yeah and because polls are kind of yeah and opinion journalists are yeah 
I have gotten quite into the occult um, mm-hmm. and divination. So finally, something we can believe in. Yeah, so I've been divining um, with a number of different different mm-hmm. traditions. I'm not going to go into them with you because you're not my magical advisor. <laughs> I'm not your uh, guardian angel. Uh, what's no. the, the angel? Um, no, you're not my angel. Or your spirit animal. Um, no, but I do or have... Or your familiar. I have my spiritual advisor, my... Mm-hmm. my um, not my magic assistant. My boss. My um It's your dog, isn't it? It isn't my dog. You know who it is. It's Mike. <laughs> um But yeah, with with my divining, I have come to the conclusion. Yeah. Well all the readings are pointing towards change, uh-huh. but there isn't gonna be just punishment. There isn't gonna be any righteous judgment. So I think <laughs> the labour are gonna do alright, but they're not gonna do massively well. I'm a believer now. But <laughs> And well, no, Labour are going to do well, but unfortunately, Labour doing well means the worst kind of local elect, like local council Blairites, yep. are still there. Yeah, it's one of the things I can't get too excited about. Like, I am going to vote Labour. Yeah, um, but I think they have to promise a lot more change mm-hmm. than has happened so far. This isn't about getting Labour people on the on the the on the council. It's about getting councillors who will actually stand up against neoliberal and gentrification projects mm. like across the board not just in london mm. where it's easier to kind of maybe get a mass of people to reverse those decisions yes yeah. you can actually you actually need it spread everywhere yeah um i do worry that you know five years from now we'll be regretting that we voted labor of the locals and try and try to get rid of them. here's the thing i don't think i'll look back and, and regret it because at the moment we're looking at like we're voting labor for a macro situation we're, yeah we're, definitely we're ever i think most people are looking big like most lefties are looking big picture yeah i got a tusc the only leaflet i got through um for this local election was a tusc one mm. um and it does actually say we're not looking to stand against any um like corbynite councillors but, but we want to kick the blair outs yeah blair, blair rights out and to be fair most of Wolfram's council is blair rights yeah that's so. that's that's the horrible thing about local government and mm. it's what it was designed to do it was mm-hmm. designed to like kick those horrible decisions that like social democratic and mm. uh post 45 uh compact social compact um governments had been bound by so if you don't provide housing at central government's fault if you yeah. don't you know make sure the bins are out all right then it's central government's fault. Mm. Um, they've just kicked all of those horrible decisions, those pernickety decisions, down to local council level and not bothered to reform anything of the local democratic culture. Mm. So it's low turnouts, terrible people, and shit services and, and like gentrification and lib- yeah. neoliberalism. Yeah, so, you know, good luck, Labour. Yeah. Um, it'll be interesting to see what happens and if my predictions... Come even slightly true, I'll be heading further down the cult path, which culminates in me doing the Abramalian ritual and losing my mind. <laughs> but consulting with an angel. But yeah, so what's yeah. what's our main thing that we're doing? Though? So we wanted to do something um, because the news is driving us fucking mental. I mean, there's I've, I've had enough of the news. I can't stand it. I hate everybody on it. I don't want to see them. Yeah, I don't. I don't blame you. Yeah. Um, our episode last week on on England, mm-hmm. uh, specifically Englishness, got yeah. us thinking about uh, the other constituent nations of the UK. Yep. Um, we'd been thinking about it for a while that we'd wanted to do what's called the, the Celtic Fringe, Scotland, mm. Wales, and Ireland. Started doing research for Brittany one episode. And Brittany and Cornwall, obviously <laughs> important parts. But yeah. Cornwall floss. Um, God, we didn't even think about Cornwall. 
I did. We are British, aren't I, we? <laughs> I, did, um, I did because um, we'll come up because um, we're first talking about it is the fear that Wales will turn into Cornwall. Yeah, it's yeah. the yeah, but yeah. We started looking into it, and it's like it's way too big a topic to mm. do just in one episode, one hour long, hour or so episode. Yeah. Um. So we're gonna split it. We're gonna start our introduction, and we're gonna talk about Wales today. Mm. Um. And hopefully, we're gonna do Scotland and Ireland next week. Mm-hmm. So the UK come came together by the Act of Union in uh, 1801, yep. um, which was the union with Scotland specifically. But I think you can definitely see, in as far as the British Isles is concerned, there's a great deal of difference between the, the Celtic nations, Scotland, Wales and Ireland, yeah. and England itself in kind of, there's a cultural difference, there's a, an economic difference, and they seem to be really coming to the fore recently. I mean, there's been more talk about Welsh independence than there has been for a while. I know there was a kind of um, heyday for that in the 70s, yeah. and it kind of uh, slacked off a bit. But Scottish independence obviously seems like more and more of a reality every day. Yeah, it does. With Brexit, you're looking at the baffling possibility of a reunified island, which I would never have... Yeah. I didn't even think about before somebody mentioned it about a day after Brexit. Yeah. And then it's like... Oh yeah, shit. <laughs> That's a good point. <laughs> that could happen, and there doesn't seem to be anywhere near the resistance to it that I thought there were. I mean, there's a resistance from the usual suspects, DUP and, and yeah. unionists generally, but we'll see. Right nowhere season. near as vociferous as I've. We're coming off the right season. Yeah, so we'll see how that yeah, goes. Yeah, we'll see how it goes. But um, but um, yeah. trying to conceptualise kind of why the these other countries are so so different mm. from um, England. And how they've managed to integrate with, in it, how they've managed to integrate into like Great Britain and the United Kingdom. Yeah, um, was looking around and um, found a book called uh, Internal Colonialism mm-hmm. um, by Michael Hector, which I didn't I didn't realize it was published in like the early seventies, late sixties, early seventies. Um, didn't realize it was as as big as it was. Apparently, it's like the Welsh nationalist bible. Um, but I mean, basically, colonialism. By an English, interesting. In yeah, well, by an American. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, so it's basically looking at the countries that make up the uh, the United Kingdom as having a colonial relationship, which is usually reserved for kind of uh, the British Empire and India, or British yeah. Empire and Africa, and and kind of fo- like uh, they call it saltwater, like imperialism. So you have to cross yeah. saltwater in order to in order to get there. Talking about the kind of creation of a, a metropole periphery uh, relationship, which is an imperial relationship within the bounds of a nation state. Mm-hmm. Um, in classic imperialism, you have core countries, which are countries that consume resources from uh, periphery countries, which they hold uh, either a, a military or a, a cultural or an economic holdover and can influence their decisions and basically reorder the world to into core and uh, metropole, metropole and periphery countries. Mm. So met, uh, peripheral countries will kind of make primary resources, they'll mine, they'll grow food. Yeah. And the... Sugar core, in the Caribbean. Sugar in the Caribbean, um, coal from Wales, stuff yeah. like that. Um, early Marxist thinkers were among the first to use that, that phrase, internal colonialism. Mm-hmm. Um, Lenin uh, talks about the Russian Empire as an inter- as a like colonizing various areas of its own territory for um, to create an internal market for um, goods and services into St Petersburg and, mm-hmm. and Moscow. Yeah. Um, Gramsci discusses Southern Italy in similar terms. 
but it really kind of started being used in the uh, later on in the 20th century to describe um like the civil rights movements in the 60s and 70s so mm. african american chicano movements um they would describe their populaces as descri- like explaining the se- the separate nature and yet how integrated they were into those nation states mm. as internal colonialism mm-hmm. right um <clears throat> american sociologist robert blauner um actually uh, term like i think it was the first person to use or one of the first people to use the word internal colonialism um he identified four components which are common to both external and internal processes of colonization so one how the racial group enters into the dominant society so colonization begins with a forced involuntary entry into the peripheral country yeah Uh, again that's military or economic or or however Uh, an impact on the cult uh, two two an impact on the culture and social organisation of the colonised people, which is more than just a result of natural processes of contact and acculturation. Uh, the colonising power carries out a policy which constrains, transforms or destroys indigenous values, orientations and ways of life. Mm-hmm. Three, colonisation involves a relationship by which members of the colonised group tend to be administered by being managed and manipulated by outsiders in terms of ethnic status. So capitalism is associated with racism in a lot of like left-wing thought, and that's one of the reasons why it's all, all bound up together. Yeah. Um, and four, racism itself, uh, a principle of social domination by which a group seen as inferior or different in terms of alleged biological characteristics is exploited, controlled and oppressed socially and physically by the superordinate group. Um, obviously, like because you're dealing with history and you're dealing with real places, this isn't uh, a once like this isn't a one size fits all kind of all encompassing hmm. idea you have to kind of analyze each colonized territory and colonizer hmm. in their own terms yeah um obviously really wary of comparing the experience of being welsh in england to being a poc in england no it's not um it's not a competition no and i don't think you could find a systemic comparison useful well, there was or that, accurate. There was that horrible or article written by that fair. Welsh journalist. Uh, it was Rhiannon Coslet. Yeah, he yeah. said like it's the only acceptable. It was, it was the only acceptable. It wasn't that she said that Welsh people were unique in being oppressed, um, but it was kind of more of the tone she used. I think like I've got a quote here. She said these uh, about anti-Welsh racism. These subtle exam- These subtle examples don't send Welsh people running home to their mams in tears. We are a tough people. Uh, and it's like, if you're drawing that comparison between people of colour and Welsh, anti-Welsh yeah. racism, you're kind of implying that people of colour yeah. are somehow softer or yeah. wussy for not like sucking up uh, racial bigotry. No. And it's like, no, that is entirely the wrong tone, even if you don't specifically... I don't think she specifically said anything incorrect it's just the comparison helps nobody no it's the dumb one um um so a key factor of internal colonialism is uh capitalism obviously it's a a a capitalist system as imperialism is a like the furthest stage of capitalism or however you want to want to term it Mm. um it doesn't it's you can see the evidence in the way that kind of colonized populations end up being stratified by something called a cultural division of labor. Mm. So it's not that say every African American is automatically in like low wage jobs. Um, but it does, that does tend to be, and there are actual measurable effects of being African American and being assigned to a certain socioeconomic group. Yeah. Um, it's an ethnic stratification. 
Mm. Um, but yeah, when when you're considering the British Isles and the Celtic fringe in particular, it's probably worth considering whether you could call them colonies in the full exploitative sense of the word, or whether they were just dependent regions. Mm. So you could say that um, post nineteen seventy nine, the north of England has been. Um, made unequal with the South. There's been yeah. a, a, a constant kind of uh, inequality present um, in the favour of the South to the detriment of the North. Yeah. But this is different from colonialism because it implies a kind of insider-outsider relationship between yeah. a colonised people and a coloniser. Um, one of the things that, uh, I think it was Foucault as well, in um, a 1976 lecture, put forward the idea that the techniques and weapons Europe transported to its colonies had a boomerang effect on the institutions, apparatuses and techniques of power in the West. A whole series of colonial models was brought back to the West and the result was that the West could practice something resembling colonisation or an internal colonialism on itself. So that includes like the ordering of life of populations at home and abroad, which is he kind of brings under biopower, which I don't fully understand yet, <laughs> but hopefully I'll do some more reading and I will. <laughs> um, <laughs> and it's kind of a useful way of combining the legitimate nationalist aspirations of the Welsh or the Scottish or the Irish while being able to acknowledge class as the main driver of those things. Yeah. It's kind of a way of seeing your way through nationalism and class politics in a, in a way that combines the two. Yeah. Um, so yeah, Michael Hector uh, wrote Internal Colonialism in 1969, um, basically stating that Wales, Ireland and Scotland had a colonial relationship with England within the bounds of the nation state defined as the United Kingdom. Mm. Uh, the state deliberately extracted a surplus from those countries and made them dependent on it for political and economic resources. Yeah. Uh, Hector argues that this process was underpinned by a legitimating racist discourse which held that Celtic nations were inferior and therefore kept them politically dependent as well as economically dependent. And the cultural division of labour in this case comes from English people being imported to occupy managerial and like ownership roles, um, whereas the subject population would be reduced to kind of a working class, a working class role. Yeah. Yeah. Um, he has two arguments. On the level of regions, he says that the lack of sovereignty characteristic of internal colonies fostered a dependent kind of development which limited their economic welfare and threatened their cultural integrity. Policies determining the administration of these territories would subsequently to be decided in a larger political arena, one in which the Celts were destined to only play a minor role. The peripheral population therefore lost the privilege of determining its own fate. Um, it had different effects in Ireland, Scotland and Wales. In Ireland, it encouraged agricultural specialisation in a similar way to um, foreign colonies, like you said, sugar in, yeah. in Jamaica. Uh, in Wales and Scotland, it promoted um, a general industrialisation, but again, this segmentation of the population into mm. uh, down cultural lines of Scottish people and Welsh people being making up the industrial working class mm. at best. Yeah. Um, uh, the second argument is individual that uh, distinctive identities um, rather than that of British yeah. would be repressed and supplanted by a British and therefore English identity yeah. um, which we talked about in the last one Yeah. so we're going to talk about Wales first off this week mm -hmm. um, a quick history <laughs> I was like, can you sum up uh, 1500 years of Welsh history in like uh, banditos? Five minutes. <laughs> banditos. As Chris Bryant would Cheese say. Cheese sauce. Banditos and liars. <laughs> really? Well, that's what he was saying. Like, if you were going to teach Welsh history, you'd have to make sure that it wasn't based in, um, wasn't based in like myth. Um, <laughs> and I think he has referred to them as ban as like, um, 
um, elevating bandits to the state of like being princes. It's like, well, no, they they were literally kings and they were princes. And well, I mean, let's also consider the fact that all bandits who gain enough power eventually become kings and princes. If we're talking how about dare you pre-industrial history, that the House of South started off. I was just thinking about the House of South. Yeah. Well, it's like all of. Them. How do you get to be king? Yeah. How do you form a ruling class in like feudal, well, pre-feudal well, things? It's like, yeah, you own a horse, yeah, and you're, a cloak, yeah. and a bunch of lads, yeah, like that's ruling class formation, yeah, you know, um, yeah. Welsh history is a hard one to like, when, especially when you get back to a subject because, like, a like with the Celtic nations, unwritten history, yeah, they all tends died. to be an oral tradition. <laughs> the Romans killed nearly everyone. <laughs> Yeah. Well, they bred with them more than anything. You have, well, yeah. um, I think like, ones... historians call it like the Romano Celts after a certain point, don't they? Yeah, but there's like the whole thing of um, any of the ones that had any of the the stories were uh, the Druidic culture. Yeah, well, that's like, like that. um, when they chased them all the way to um, Anglesey. Yeah, and killed them all. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> um, because that's what you do. Because you know, we've seen that um, Jez Butterworth series, Britannia. They yeah. seem super annoying druids. <laughs> Um, if I got a chance to kill Mackenzie Crook, oh, he's so good in that. He's like really the only, good. Him and the um, the other weird shaman, are the only good ones in that. Yeah. But anyway, yeah. yeah. So yeah. So fifteen hundred years of Welsh history. Fifteen hundred years of Welsh history compacted into two minutes. Okay. Right. First off, a guy finds some seaweed. Right. And he's like, yum. And he <laughs> says, "Hey, what's cheese? <laughs> yeah. Can I put this on bread?" <laughs> um. Wales is often traced back as the first colony of what would be called what would become the British Empire. Yeah. Plaid Cymru MP Adam Price described it. Sorry, uh, AM Adam yeah. Price uh, described it as uh, this way: English imperialism can perhaps be described as Wales' greatest and most terrible export. <laughs> but Wales, its people and industry played a crucial role in the formation of the empire. Mm-hmm. And the little engine. Yep, yeah, the little engine that could, and have a weird contradictory relationship with Britain and Empire in general that I think doesn't quite prove that it's an internal colony. Yeah. I think you could say it's semi-colonial, There's but like, I don't think you could go much further than that. Well, there's things like um, Swansea mm. was um, Copperopolis, where like at one point like over 60% of the world's copper was there, was mm. coming from there. Isn't this something to do with the fact that you have to smelt copper with tin? And something Cornwall like had some of the like there's like only massive amounts of tin in like Cornwall and somewhere in Turkey. There is <laughs> sounds, some statistic like sounds that. Sounds about like. right. Um, so originally, originally, um, I'm going back maybe fifteen. Let's say fifteen hundred years. Yeah. Uh, you've got a set of independent Welsh kingdoms, mm-hmm. um, only really united under now the rule of a dragon. I am going to try. Okay, I'm going to try not to make jokes. I don't mind not being able to pronounce Welsh. <laughs> Names, right? I'm going to struggle. You can correct me wherever you want. Okay. However, if you hear me choking and gasping for breath, <laughs> that's because I've tried to do it in a Welsh accent. <laughs> Don't try to do it in a Welsh accent. But it's the greatest gift the English have given. It's the one thing <laughs> that the English are perfect at every time, and that's mimicking the accent <laughs> of anybody around them. Yes, right? Definitely. <laughs> I just wanted to sing Men of Harlech. <laughs> um. A set of independent Welsh kingdoms, only really united under Griffin ap Llewellyn. That's about right. Yeah? Okay. Uh, frequently attacked by Norman kings after the Norman conquest. Um, a cycle of rebellion and retreat. So they, the Normans would come in, establish 
castles and things like that. The Welsh would retreat to the mountains into the forests. They would come back and re-establish the original kingdoms with a load of like about five kingdoms yeah. within the territory of what we now Each call time Wales. Each time having a, new, a nice newer house built by yeah. <laughs> French yeah. artisans who yeah. just turned up and built them a nice new house. <laughs> um, it finally became a full possession of England um, under Edward I in 1282. That's the Braveheart King. Yep. Uh, so far, so feudal. Yep. Owain Glendower rebelled against this vassal status under Henry IV in 1400. After the defeat of this rebellion, the English enacted the Welsh Penal Laws, Mm -hmm. which is where you get most of the jokes about kind of uh, laws against the Welsh. Yeah. Uh, I'll run down a few of them. Is that the one where they um, they get rid of the Welsh legal system and replace it with the English one? There is is still a Welsh legal system at this point, but it is firmly (laughs) pointed at the Welsh. (laughs) Uh, Here are a few of the Welsh Penal Laws. So... In border areas, Welshmen were forbidden to acquire lands. If stolen goods from a border town were not recovered in one week's time, residents could retaliate on any Welshman they could seize. <laughs> I love that one. I love that you're laughing about this. No, I just love the idea. It's the horrific story of your people. <laughs> I just love the notion of... Okay, so like, say you lose your phone, and you don't find it within a week, and then you see a Welshman... I can stab you. <laughs> yeah. No, it's a, it's a fine system. It's a fine system. It worked. Yeah, <laughs> Say what you want, people, those castles could leave their fucking drawbridges open at night. You knew everyone up and down the Welsh marches. <laughs> Herefordshire was a much nicer place to live in 1400. Um, in Wales itself, Welshmen were prohibited from acquiring lands within boroughs and they couldn't hold any municipal offices. Provisions forbade Welshmen from the carrying of arms, the fortifications of any house, or the holding of a responsible office in the service of any English lord. Furthermore, any Englishman who took a Welsh wife was to be legally treated as Welsh. The most horrible punishment. (laughs) Hey, lads? Hey? Hey? Get bawdy. So if you marry a Welsh woman, you catch Welsh. Mm -hmm. That's fantastic. You are legally defined as Welsh from then on. To be fair, I've always thought of my nationality as cloying. (laughs) <laughs> I think I have made my wife more Welsh. Suppurating. Yeah. Just rubbed <laughs> off on her. Uh, lastly, Welshmen were denied freedom of assembly without special permit. Um, and the Act of Union itself, uh, which we'll come on to in a second, forbade Welsh speakers from office holding and all judges appointed to courts had to be English. Um, this persisted until Henry VIII, um, who hid the Tudor family were... Welsh in origin. Definitely. They were a wing of the... Yeah, they were like Pembrokeshire-based. Pembrokeshire. Yeah. yeah. He was uh, born and, I think, raised in Pembrokeshire. He does Pembroke, look... Pembroke Castle. Henry VIII did look like a rugby player. He really did. He's he. You look at that traditional picture of Henry VIII, and there is something Welsh about him. <laughs> just I, don't, I have no idea just, why I think that. basing it on the ruddy cheeks. Yes. <laughs> he looks like he has cirrhosis. He looks like he's just come from a holiday in Spain. Oh, no, he's pale as all fuck. <laughs> Ruddy, though. Yeah. Ruddy. Uh, So Henry VIII passed uh, the Laws in Wales Act in 1536, which formally annexed Wales. Mm -hmm. It wasn't just a a vassal state independently, it was now part of England. Mm -hmm. Uh, It abolished any legal distinction between the Welsh and the English, which ended the Welsh Penal Code, code, although it wasn't formally repealed. Mm -hmm. It's just that Welsh people had the same rights as English people. Uh, Yeah. (laughs) Um... It allowed 
It formally defined the England-Wales border and allowed members representing constituencies in Wales to be elected to the English Parliament. It integrated Wales with England in legal terms and imposed English land law, English courts and judges and the Church of England, Mm. which was quite an important thing we'll get on to later. Uh, Abolished the Welsh legal system and banned the Welsh language from any official role or status. Yeah. All Welsh affairs were to to be settled in London by King and Parliament. Only English-speaking Welshmen were permitted to hold administrative office in Wales. Hector points out, although it's clear that there had been no Welsh state to speak of, the union with England robbed this this territory of potential sovereignty. Hmm. Yeah. Um, So some people point towards the kind of end of that relationship as giving full legal equality. But if you compare it with what happened in Ireland later, Hmm. where Catholics were deprived of land and things like that, but then Ireland became formally part of the UK. Yeah. um, The precedent's already been set for an unequal relationship. Definitely. Between the colonised and colonised well, country. Like the the language thing. There's still a whole bunch of them who don't speak English. Yeah, yeah. Um, landowners began to become more anglicised because obviously they couldn't hold any political yeah. office without being largely English-speaking. Um, they can't make any deals. Yeah. They can't sell anything. You can't write down any contracts, anything like that, no. because it has to be in English. Wales was largely on the royalist side, <laughs> bafflingly, the royalist side. I think it's more to do with Catholicism. Yeah. Um, largely to do with having their own church. Mm. If you skip ahead a bit, um, the Protestant Reformation brings a whole load of different kind of strains of Protestantism to Wales. This mm. becomes really important and becomes central to Welsh identity, uh, non-conformist churches, yeah. religions. With the unequal access to resources, education, institutions, locally Welsh people expressed their distinctiveness through language and religion. Welsh identity became a counter-hegemonic counter identity to be adopted against exploitative Britishness. Mm. Um, which I think Hector maybe goes a bit too far with with the oppositional I think it's probably more of a supplementary identity Welsh as well as British Um, the English were quite hostile towards nonconformists up until 1828 uh, practicing nonconformists were excluded from government and from military office so uh, yeah it (laughs) kind of reinforces that idea that Welsh nationalism is non-conformity in religion and yeah. speaking Welsh. Yeah. Right. Politically, uh, Welsh identity tended to be expressed through the Liberal Party, which um, uh, agitated for home rule and for disestablishment of the Anglican Church. People in Wales had to spend, had to pay taxes to the Anglican Church, had to pay tithes to the Anglican Church, and all their institutions were owned by the Anglican, Anglican Church, while at the same time having to pay tithes to their particular non-conformist church. Yeah. Um, in the late 18th, by the late 1800s, Welsh historians started writing and defining the Welsh nation through images and history, like trying to form a kind of ad hoc culture. Yeah, that's, it's like because the notion of druids—that's like mm. that's like, that was formed in London, wasn't it? It was like a Welshman who was. It was, in yeah. I used to work around the corner. Apparently, it's got a little plaque up that says, yeah. uh, "This is where the new order of druids was formed yeah. in 1827." It's like um. Uh, like a Welsh bourgeoisie trying to come up with a notion of national identity. Yeah. Um, you get a lot of people in the late 1700s, early 1800s, um, like the, uh, a guy called... Um, whoa, his bardic name is very Welsh. Well, it's his, Iolo bardic, it's his bardic name. Morgan... Uh, okay, I-O-L-O Morgan W-G. There we go. Uh, it was the bardic name of Edward Williamson Williams who uh, started the uh, Gorsed and Eisteddfod. Yeah. Uh, up again. So yeah, Welsh historians and kind of Welsh people interested yeah. in the kind of ancient culture of Wales 
um, started to perpetuate this romantic image of a rural, classless Welsh society centred on religious nonconformity in the Welsh language. Um, but it's important to note this was done in the, within the framework of an industrialising and kind of imperialising yeah. Wales. It's becoming more like it's it's still doing what England wants. Yeah. If you know what I mean, it's in it's like an imperial region. It's adding spice yeah. to the empire broth. Yeah. If you know what I mean. <laughs> okay. This is partly a reaction to some quite virulent anti-Welsh um, sentiment um, yeah. set up. Uh, there's one uh, particular thing that I'm sure you know about, the Blue Books. Yep. The, um, the book about... It's like 1846. It's about education, isn't it? It's, like, it's yeah. about the Welsh people. It's where it has really lovely things about how the Welsh language makes you stupid, mm-hmm. um, which the Daily Mail still does today. Um, <laughs> there's, there's stuff in it about um, the women of Aberdeer, which is where my family are from. The women of Aberdeer being all like slags. Yeah. There's a whole bunch they're, they're of... They're um, wanton. Yeah, there's a whole bunch of stuff about how Welsh women are naturally just, just shagging anything <laughs> all the time because they're not they're not good and Christian. <laughs> they're not Christian enough. They're the wrong kind of Christian and they're not English enough. So they're always shagging about. And that's like fucking up the whole country. And the, the general conclusion is we need to stop them from speaking Welsh. Yeah, there's it's a, turning them all into like there's idiot a there's slags. a weird kind of thing. Like okay, this does this it's definitely so happens in India, where they talk about the kind of you know debased manner of the Hindu with two O's. Yeah, um, and uh, maybe they just look at kind of the hundreds of Indian languages and go, nah, that's a bit too far. But we can do one. <laughs> we can abolish one because they it's specifically completely abolishing it because it's a social evil Mm. um from the blue books the actual quote um the welsh language is a vast drawback to wales and a manifold barrier to the moral progress and commercial prosperity of the people it bars the access of improving knowledge to their minds because of their language the mass of the welsh people are inferior to the english in every branch of practical knowledge and skill the welsh language distorts the truth favors fraud and abets (laughs) perjury in some Welsh is a disastrous barrier to all moral improvement and popular popular progress in Wales. What? Matthew Arnold, in uh, who was a senior inspector of schools, said, "The sooner the Welsh language disappears as an instrument of the practical political social life of Wales, the better." <laughs> it's um, it's very telling. It's like just generally the English's attitude to all languages, really, isn't it? <laughs> well, um, it's you know, it is naturally good for like committing fraud much like the way that you know Inuits have so many words for snow the Welsh have an absurd amount of words for lie <laughs> it's just that just how it is I mean you've talked to me about like times you've had like still now um, I've had anti-Welsh like uh, now it's only from events happen age of person to <laughs> me um, the only stuff I have to me personally is from a very specific age of English person yeah um, the stuff like with mates that's very different well no um, yeah i'm, like I'm talking conf- about like you know oh yeah and it's- yeah um and you just you see it it was still now like you see if they ever have a welsh language debate on the english bbc mm. it's always they'll get i've they'll get either was it a radio five one a few uh well, last year sometime um, there was one on i think there was one on radio five there was one on um news night where they had um this english writer and he's not a very successful writer. I know from Desolation Radio he was hit by a car at some point in his <laughs> life. And he was debating with a woman who... She wasn't even, uh, like... Uh, wasn't Welsh like Welsh as her first language. Mm. But she spoke Welsh. And it's always... What they'll do is they'll have someone who can speak Welsh, but probably not their first language. Yeah. 
debating with someone who doesn't speak Welsh at all. Like the last time it was on the Daily Politics and it had um, James Dellingpole. Yeah. And a Ply MP. <laughs> and the Ply MP was talking about Welsh as like, um, it's uh, her husband and her children's first language. They think in it and they dream in it. Yeah. James Dellingpole referred to the Welsh. It's a lovely poetic turn of phrase. I hear is. <laughs> Characteristic of the Welsh language, and James not Delling- to romanticise it, but yeah. like you know, um, well, James Dellingpole then he referred to Welsh as being the same as fox hunting and Morris dancing as a quaint tradition, <laughs> because it's exactly the same. It's the way the argument's framed, and it's like the BBC and all like news media is the same. With like, we'll get one person for, one person against, but the person they always have against the Welsh language is always some utterly. Ig- Big ignorant Englishman who is just There's some no wild. account person who doesn't have any stake in it whatsoever. Mm. And this was because this was in this is a this is after the Rod Little article about um, you know grubby Welsh valleys angry about the bridge that connects them to the first world. Jesus. That article that he wrote about a fortnight ago. Mm. Um, because yeah, it's still it's still they still refer to it like it's not saying that it's the British state. Mm. Is a racist state. Yeah, it it just is, mm. um, and there's a kind of pally jokiness about the Welsh being liars and cheats and poor and never wanting to be anything other than poor. Mm. That just it's just constant. There's a weird kind of authenticrat thing to it because I notice it when people uh, in the media specifically, mm. middle class people in the media, like even when they do like joking around stuff about um, like Liverpool, mm. like Liverpudlians being mm. car thieves or yeah. anything like that. Um, they take what is a joke, but because they've got this national platform and they're serious journalists, yeah. they think it somehow enhances their working class cred. It's like, oh, everybody's talking about scousers. Everybody's talking about like yeah. taffs or whatever. Yeah. Like this. And it's like, I don't think you do. I was baffled. I, I, I um, w- was watching rugby um, like a few months ago. Mm. And... Um, I was with a load of men, and you know, as you are, like proper men, not the kind of men like that we prop, proper with. men. Yeah, yeah, like fifty-year-old, sixty-year-old men. Mm. And um, there was definitely men who readjust that, their belts a lot. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and their like anti-Welshness, as far as rugby goes, it's like it doesn't matter who wins as long as the Welsh lose. And it's like you have literally no other opinions <laughs> on the Welsh yeah. other than this specific thing. Where the fuck does it come from? It is. It's kind of funny with rugby because you know, like. Well, to be fair, with everyone that isn't English, everyone who isn't English does root for anyone who's not English with regards to any sporting event that the English are I against. saw them rooting for, like, France. Yeah, that's the, but the thing is... Which is mad. Rugby is one of those rare things where the Welsh do excel. Hmm. Um, because of years of <laughs> working in cramped conditions in mines have taught them to have, like, bred a stocky people. Hmm. Um the English still bitch about like it's like it's, it's, it's really somehow odd. an affront. Like the English do take it as an affront when their sports team doesn't win. Yeah, and it's never because their sports teams are shit. Mm. Um, it's always because someone else is cheating. It's in a, some it, way. It's a weird kind of like not cultural jealousy exactly, but the whole thing the English have with we invented that sport mm. and they you know they invented rugby they football invented or so whatever. many sports, but it's really kind of ingrained in the culture of Wales. And I think if a, a single country could be said to like own rugby it would probably be between England and Wales with maybe Wales like 
thick in it. Wales likes it more. Yeah, Wales. Well, actually, it's more of um, class-wise in England. It's more. <coughs> it's very much more like if you hear someone with an English accent talking about the rugby, it's all you know the yeah. rugger. It's a it's an upper class thing. Whereas in yeah. Wales, it does tend to be more of a egalitarian. It's across class boundaries yeah, than yeah. like English rugby. Yeah, I'm trying to think. Of the last time it was like a big. There's always this stuff that when Wales comes up in the news with specifically with the Welsh language, and it will be normally non-Welsh speakers being really annoyed at their kid learning Welsh in somewhere in Ceredigion. And kind of framing it as like there's a Welsh elite who are corrupting their children. Almost like like gay panic from the yeah, 70s. It's, um, Welsh language fascists. Um, yeah. And all that kind of stuff. And it's not really true. Um, like, mm. okay, so my dad's... All my dad's siblings, my dad and his siblings, they didn't speak Welsh. Mm. Um, me and my cousins were all sent to... We all learned Welsh in schools and I was sent to a Welsh school. Mm. Um that's because where we lived in Cardiff. Cardiff has quite a few good Welsh schools. Like yes, I went, yeah. That's why I'm, I went to a Welsh school. Um, it was quite an important thing for that generation to, you know. Yeah, work, there was work. definitely that resurgence after, during like the 80s and the, like 90s. And, yeah. yeah. Um, learning another language doesn't make you dumb. <laughs> and there yeah. seems to be a thing that, and there, there seems to be this ignorant fear and it's funnel, it's fueled by like, just lazy Daily Mail Express reporting, mm. but the notion that learn it, like you learn this language in, in instead of learning something else. Like yeah. if you're starting to be taught Welsh at the age of five, you're never going to learn maths. Like it's an indulgence. Yeah. Like um, the way the they the to... way they talk about media studies as opposed to yeah. learning important things. Yeah. Like maths. And English. Why would anyone need to be able to analyse facts and be able to determine to, to separate fact from fiction? Well, which is it's it's weird because it is also paint, painted as like, despite its kind of working almost like the association of Welshness with working classness with being, mm. being the ideal proletariat, the model proletariat. Um, it's painted as like a middle class foible. Um, for a long time it was in Wales. Yeah, in, I mean, Wales, it still it is. I do yeah. want to get... Yeah. There are some statistics um, I have about Wales. There's that notion Welsh of like, um, working classness in Welsh. Like, um, it is the place, the first place in the world where the red flag of communism flew, mm. um, the Merthyr Uprising, which yeah. was caused by an Englishman. Yeah. Make, um, making the people of Merthyr build him a castle. <laughs> is he the one with the uh, weight on his grave so yes. he doesn't rise? Yep. <laughs> um, there's lots of stories about him being like a kidnapping children and shit like that but that, mm. it's like it's hard to tell if that's true or not or you know yeah. I, I'm going to say yeah it was it was a Jerry Lawler of his day yeah allegedly <laughs> so <laughs> so as we've as, as you've alluded to there <laughs> we've alluded to um, Wales uh, as part of this economically is a huge proletarian area mm. huge socialist history um, mainly in mining and quarrying, not actually that many kind of factories or kind of uh, developed industrial areas. No, there's there's, uh, steel, there's steel works, yeah. but um, mainly primary resource thing, which is one of the things yeah. Hector points to to discussing whether it's a colony or not. Yeah, because colonies don't tend to have industrialized. Um, yeah, economies. Yeah, you don't trust them with the factory. Uh, yeah, well, you want to bring it back because you're using their resources to kind of make your home population rich. Yeah, if you know what I mean. Um, so yeah, uh, employment in Wales uh, in mining and quarrying was thirty-seven percent in eighteen fifty-one and fifty-two percent by nineteen eleven. Compare that to Britain as a whole, ten uh, percent in eighteen fifty-one and fifteen percent in nineteen eleven. So obviously, hugely kind of single track. Uh, industry not very diversified at all no. 
There's not a lot of different roles and jobs in Wales. Um, actual English decisions to invest in Wales and Scotland were, ten, uh, Hector argues, were conditional upon the realisation of political stability, which means kind of putting down uprisings, as you mentioned, yeah. with Merthyr, um, and in practice involved the suppression of Celtic culture in Highland areas. Within Welsh and Scottish counties, the prevalence of Celtic culture, as indicated by Welsh and Gaelic speakers, and religious nonconformity is negatively associated with per capita income through the period. The partial industrialisation of Wales and Scotland encouraged the emergence of cultural distinctions between their respective enclaves and their hinterlands. For the most part, industrial enclaves, so you'd be thinking of like the Valleys, the Rhonda, Port Talbot, Swansea, Cardiff, yeah. those places, um, were relatively cosmopolitan and anglicised, while rural hinterlands remained Welsh-speaking and had distinctive cultural practices. So like Ceredigion, Aberystwyth, uh, all the yeah, way up to... kind of all the way up to Anglesey and, yeah. and North Wales. So the regions became split into two kind of separate cultural zones. Hmm. Um, this kind of interfered with the development of a single regional political identity. So hmm. it's kind of pointing towards one of the reasons why Wales finds it very difficult to not define its national identity, but to get enough people behind one particular um, expression of that national hmm. identity. Um, also, by this point, there are there's like virtually no way of getting from... South Wales to North Wales. Yeah, that's the other thing. The transport infrastructure is entirely set up it's to, to west. extract yeah. the thing and get it into English factories. Hmm. Um, interestingly enough, uh, most of the industry in South Wales was controlled by... Uh, while well, most of the rest of the industry in South Wales was controlled by English interests, steam coal industry was exceptional in that Welshmen were prominent in its development. A sizable proportion of mine owners were born in Wales and shared similar social origins, religion and language with the workers, hmm. apparently. Um, so you've got the development of a kind of a bourgeoisie and a proletariat, mainly in, uh, in South Wales, uh, centred around the cities. Um, on questions relating to home rule and the disestablishment of the church, which are their main kind of political goals, there's no real conflict between the native Welsh bourgeoisie and the proletariat. The owners of a mine, if they were Welsh, were regarded as paragons of the church and community yeah. and usually deferred to in social and political matters. They were committed liberals and were so natural opposition candidates for a, a Tory parliament from mm. the mining constituencies. Um, um, the alliance of the Welsh bourgeoisie and proletariat um, was cemented around the notion of that they were separate, that they were separate in language and separate in religious practice, and so both classes could perceive that they were somehow underdogs. So that whole attitude of um, you have to be, you have to leave Wales to be successful, mm. that kind of applies to both the bourgeoisie and the proletariat generally. Yeah. Um, interestingly enough, in the nineteenth century, there's a lower percentage of people from Wales emigrated than that than from Ireland, Scotland, or England. Welsh people also showed higher levels of returning home than other Britons. Various reasons have been suggested. It's probable that the high levels of industrial employment in Wales allowed for more people to return home during times of economic plenty, yeah. um, which means that there's a relatively small kind of diaspora. I think there's mm. some in Patagonia, um, yeah, Wales, a, but that tends to happen after the war as well. Yeah, uh, Wales, uh, Australia, sorry. There's also, after the war. Um, well, there was a whole bunch after Merthyr. Because mm. <laughs> um, I remember when I, went, when, I lived in, um, when I was living in Australia, there were a couple of places like... Um, a couple of really old houses and streets that had names. There was um, in Sydney. There was some places named after bits of the Medway towns. Mm -hmm. And there in Melbourne, we lived just off of um, just off of like Kamamon Street. Yeah, 
Oh, you see a lot in the in the records of like um, uh, shipping and things like that. Mm. So you'll find the Denbyshire, yeah, the Carmarthen, yeah. But I know mm. it doesn't have as much of a there wasn't as, there isn't as much of a Welsh diaspora than and like Scotland's real bad for it. Like Scotland's out migration is like it's s- enormous, staggering. Yeah, um, like it's only just in the last couple of years, like yeah. a couple last recent times, where it's starting to not have that. Yeah, and obviously you mentioned Ireland with that well, as yeah. well. Kind of losing half the population to yeah. to out migration is uh, yeah. it creates a massive diaspora. Yeah. But also with um, and that well, one that one's a bad one because you know American Irish are just the worst things <laughs> in the world. Originally, Just they were this... great. They had the greatest jigs. Oh, God. Boston. <laughs> Just, they're the worst people. They're the worst. They're the worst races. Like, they're the ones I can't, like, I can't handle anything they say. <laughs> um, what was I going to say? Um, yeah, the interesting thing is there's not a lot of kind of Welsh, I mean, I suppose there's like, you think of like J.P. Morgan. Hmm. Maybe he has some Welsh ancestry. The interesting thing is, when Scottish people go abroad, when Irish people go abroad, they take their identity with yeah. them. Welsh people, Shame. when they go abroad, they become British. Yeah, they become English. In fact, in some shipping records, they're actually just listed as English, mm. if they even if they come from Wales. So it's very difficult for historians to go back and tell proper levels of migration, although they still like, think it's lower. There's such a... Like, the national identity is so paper-thin that it's quite easy to shed. Yeah. Well, it's all based around home stuff. It's, yeah. I mean, there is, like, I've seen some kind of historical sources talk about the kind of longing for home, mm. which I, I don't think is a peculiarly Welsh thing. I think it would nice. be a, a, a general a general thing from anybody, any migrant. Mm. But um, they don't seem to have all of their political kind of expression as Welsh people is tied up with home. Yeah. So it's, you're a member of that church. Which is an international, it's not a specific Welsh church. There's not a lot that's Welsh about it. I'm sure there was some Welsh cultural practices that worked their way into non-conformist religion. But you can do that abroad. Um, Yeah, for instance. Because there's that one in... But it's not, it doesn't have to be in Welsh. There's that Welsh church just off Oxford Street. Yes, yeah. That's um, quite pretty. It's very, very pretty. Um, But you're talking about the kind of disestablishment of of the Anglican church in Wales. If you're not in Wales, that means less and less. You're talking about the Welsh language, which is kind of carried with you as a a general language. And because of the kind of difficult relationship between English and Welsh anyway, if you're going abroad on English ships or in the British Army, you're speaking Mm. English anyway or you're learning English. Um, There's less express, there's just less of a cultural identity to express when you're abroad. And that's not counting the kind of numerous ways that Welsh people were considered just English anyway, mm. you know? Um, oh, there's that good film about um, someone who only speaks Welsh going off on doing... What was the English name of that work. film? Hedwin. Yeah. The, uh, the Welsh yeah, you war told film. me about that. Welsh yeah. war film, yeah. About um, a Welsh poet conscripted and sent off to fight in World War One. who doesn't speak a word of English. And like, a group of them who don't speak English. It didn't go well for him. <laughs> Because he was a poet that didn't speak a single word of the language that was being shouted at him to go one way, or a single word of the language of people shouted at him who were trying to kill him. I don't understand. It's in my leg. You're fine. <laughs> it's in my leg. You're fine. Um, yeah, so you slowly got a kind of um, increasing trade union consciousness through the 19th century. Mm. Um, but specifically in Wales, it gets associated with um, originally the, the Liberal Party. They're not. Kind of, they're looking for a political outlet. Mm. They haven't quite formed the the Labour Party, the Labour as, Party you would, formed, as you would as you would know it, and mm. so it's tied up still with these same twin issues of uh, religion and mm. language. 
um, it would be unlikely that any kind of material benefits accruing to these regions would be attributed to like London giving them stuff. Mm. On the contrary, any concrete gains wrested from the central administration would tended to be explained by the exertion of um, nationalist political pressure. Yeah. So it's um, the liberals coming through for you in a similar way that the Labour government does now. They don't now. But no Welsh people, I mean, no Welsh people, frankly, no people in any region. If something good happened to them, they would not necessarily associate it with the beneficence of the British state. No. Um, Directly, they would associate it with your local MP or your local party if they were so inclined to be positive in that way. Yeah. Um, The Labour movement succeeded initially in Wales only to the extent that it identifies itself with these traditional aspects of Welsh politics. Up until the First World War, Labour candidates steadily advocated disestablishment and home rule, although the latter came to be justified on socialist principles to distinguish it from earlier nationalism. For example, uh, Keir Hardy made a point of attending the Eisteddfod and learning the Welsh national anthem. But the rural hinterland, which Labour didn't appeal to because there were few industrial workers to be found there, continued secure in its uh, support for the Liberal Party for want of any alternative. Mm. So the nationalist sentiments of Wales became divided between two opposition parties. Mm. Um, Welsh, Wales's own bourgeoisie was diffuse and not united around a common Welsh identity because they didn't experience any benefit from Welshness. They experienced it from a closer association with England. Yeah. Um, there's an old phrase like, uh, Welsh people become successful when they leave Wales. Um, the benefits of Welshness were mainly felt in two ways as a form of cultural distinctiveness through persisting language um, that centred on the north and a common industrial working class bond in the Mm. south Um, so Hector kind of talks about the Welsh people's relationship to the British Empire Mm. Um, he kind of discusses how uh, when Kipling wrote um, Take Up the White Man's Burden it can be assumed he was ta- not talking about Celts. Hmm. He was not talking about the Welsh. He was talking about the Anglo-Saxons and probably saw the Welsh in terms of the half-devil and half-child <laughs> rather than the you know yeah. the white man of the uh, thing. As I've said, like in the 19th century, a lower percentage of people from Wales emigrated from uh, Wales than from Ireland, Scotland or England. Um, and the 19th century was the time when Wales gained kind of its own university colleges, a national library and a museum, a state education system and, as we said, the general industrial progress. Um, there's a few examples of prominent individuals, but they're not. It doesn't come from the fact that, they've, that they're Welsh, mm. as we've noted. Welsh imperialists, mm. soldiers, entrepreneurs, civil servants, people like that, tended to identify as British when they were abroad and Welsh when they were at home. So they were victims of imperialism at home, Mm. but proponents of it when they were abroad. Uh, There's one letter from uh, a man called J. Isaac Davies from Carnarvon uh, to the North Wales Chronicle in 1900. I claim to be a nationalist, but a nationalist that is proud of the position his country holds as a portion of the greatest empire the world has ever seen, and a nationalist that is proud of the share Welshmen have had in making the same empire what it is. Yeah, it's disgusting. (laughs) Um... Hector describes this kind of attitude as servitor imperialism, which is the imperialism of second-class citizens. Um, It appeals to them because not only can they get an economic advantage, so for instance, if you're a miner, you can see if you're going to war to claim kind of foreign territories, you can see, oh, well, that means the price of coal. I've got a new market for the coal that I'm mining. Like People kind of look at working-class people and think that they can't put those two things together, but Mm. I I think they can. Mm. I don't think it's like... I don't... The idea that working class people 
in Britain generally were duped into imperialism. I think it's like a not a helpful idea. No. I you know they try and say like oh the imperial the you know you hear it now like oh well my family was working class they didn't benefit from imperialism at all and it's like well you did and you probably had an inkling that it made you even if you it was only expressed in the term in terms of status mm. um you had the idea that it was making you great mm. you know you were associated with this great project and this great thing that would lead to benefits for you we've still got a voluntary army at this point yeah so yeah. you know it's it's that thing of yeah you, you can, can you can see it. Well, you can see it with people in the um, in a poorer regions clustered around um, arms manufacturing mm. places. Now, uh, you tend to be the kind of people who are talking about like, no, we can't get rid of Trident. Mm. That kind of <clears throat> Hector identifies as well that it might serve indirectly to expiate some of the inferiority associated with per- peripheral social origins. It may give some individuals from disadvantaged groups the first opportunity to escape from self-assessment as victim to one of conqueror, mm. because. For the utter pariahs of the mid-19th century slums, even modest improvements seemed absolute gains. Yeah. Especially, like, the mid-19th century, the, like, around Merthyr and Swansea, Mm. it was horrible. Yeah. Like, they are living in, like, tiny little tin shacks Mm. um, and just dying of horrible, preventable, lung-based, like, pollution deaths. Yeah. Um, much like in modern Port Talbot now. <laughs> it was, yeah, but, but worse. Yeah. Like, um, yeah, the, the furnaces never stop. All it was that like kind of the, shit. And, the, and the kind of idea that a good life awaits you on the other side by going into the army. Yeah, which still is there now. Yeah, I mean, you've told me about that. I, I did the, see an article the, earlier on that was like, uh, recruitment in Wales is up like 15% this which, year. It's um, Desolation Radio, the Welsh podcast, yeah. does... Uh, there's a good episode they've done on the militarism in Wales mm-hmm. and it is like um, so we both grew up in the Medway Towns which has yes. an army base and a naval base mm-hmm. uh, it doesn't have a naval base anymore does it okay no. um, and an arms manufacturer yeah um, the but the militarism in Wales was is more yeah like um, I from my experiences there is significantly more than it was in the southeast. Mm. Um, I think my family are quite anti-military. They've always been kind of yeah. on the far left. Mm. Um, I've got one uncle who's in the military now, and he is yeah. the he's the biggest earner and the most well-educated. Yeah, and that is entirely because of the military. My dad joined the air force at one point because there was literally no other choice of what to do. Yeah, um, he'd had too long down the mine because he was thinking my dad, my dad was like 19 at that point and he'd already been working in a coal mine for three years <laughs> um which is yeah because you could work in coal mines yeah. as, like a lot younger in wales then mm. um but like i think it's in even in this military cadets it's a big thing in wales yes um and you know it's like cubs but more yeah gunny <laughs> um <laughs> And you know, you've got to remember that Britain is still one of the only developed nations that has child soldiers. Yeah. Um, they don't get put on the front lines at sixteen, but they still let them in at sixteen. Yeah. Which is not good. Yeah. It's not good for the mental health of it's, anyone. It's, it's a hangover of the way that they treated and classed the military mm. throughout the kind of imperial things. You say that, you know, there's a lot more military uh, regiments from Wales. Mm. Um and people even now in like the southeast, who are really pro-military, they're pro-military as long as they don't have to live near army bases. Oh yeah, um, 
And so naturally, you put them in lower social status areas, it's of a, which Wales a, fits that bill. A, there's um, for those, there's certain like adverts for the for the army that you there's like one of them that you've only just started having now in um in yes I in have South seen Africa, that like one the Brotherhood one it's fucking gross yeah it's do you, it's basically saying do you feel alone yeah. do you feel atomized by your late capitalist culture <laughs> I'll tell you a place you can I'll feel, I'll tell you a place you can feel brotherhood did you ever see American History X about how happy <laughs> Edward Norton Jr was when he joined the skinheads <laughs> yeah well this is like that but the army yeah um and it's like and even like on a peripheral level, the mm. people who end up working sort of for the military, like my cousin, she might not still be working for it now, but she used to be working for part of the Forestry Commission in Brecon. Mm. Um, the bit that dealt with... This is where the, um, the SAS train. Well, you, yeah. know, you see them dying in the summer all the time yeah. because they're idiots. Um, it's still one of those things that confuse me. We find main, most of our wars mainly in the desert, so where should we train? Mm. In the Brecon Beacons. <laughs> <laughs> and they still can't handle it there. So you can, <laughs> but um, there is definitely a more of a push. It's always been like Wales and Northern Ireland are the main ones that the British military yeah. still like really pushes <clears throat> for to like. Which in Northern point. Ireland, I can't imagine it is is designed to do anything but take um, rabid unionists mm-hmm. into the British Army, and they're gonna have to be. <clears throat> they're gonna. They're the ones who are the least gonna have to be told what to do. Mm. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. There's a there's a sense of that. I'm sure it's not true. I'm sure there's like decent unionists. <laughs> but I'm sure there are. I'm sure there are somewhere. But you know, there's still that attitude of a lower social status group. You want uh what's it? They it's the French when they were describing Wellington's army said it's um uh convicts led by toffs. That sounds about right. You know? Which kind of given the French army at the time was kind of, uh, you know, nationalistic recruits who were yeah. positive and patriotic and all that. Mm. British army has never required you to be patriotic. No, no. Um, it's required definitely. you to be vicious, yeah. but not patriotic. Yeah, and the British are that. <laughs> yeah. Um, you, uh, Hector writes a bit about, um, like, kind of historically, the way that the kind of Celtic countries responded to, like, imperial issues. Mm. Um, he does a couple, has a couple of examples. So in 1876 in Turkey, which was then a client state of the United Kingdom, um, which Ottoman Empire, uh, brutally suppressed the nationalist rebellions by Bulgarians, who, as it happens, were Christian. The Turkish troops used to restore order in Bulgaria were Muslims, and the British press made much of the torture which they perpetrated against the Christian people with the sanction of the London Foreign Office. A rash of protests was filed with various government agencies from all over the British Isles. Um, a historian analysed the regional origins of these protests and he found that Wales was the second of seven regions in the intensity of anti-Turkish and hence anti-government sentiment. Ireland was a sixth, was a distant sixth, uh, Scotland was a distant sixth out of seven and Ireland sent virtually no protests at all. Um, Wales protested strongly because it had that strong religious element, hmm. um, not necessarily because it was kind of pro-imperial, but hmm. it was you know, like pro-Christian. pro-Christian. Um, <clears throat> they also did a survey on the uh, the Boer War. Um, writers made assessments of the regional reactions to, of the UK's attempt to crush the self-determination of the Boers, which, you know, you could think of as an exact analogue with Welsh and Scottish kind of independence struggles. Yeah. Um, it's been argued that Wales as a whole was much more inclined to militant anti-imperialism than was Scotland, whereas support for the war in South Africa, where support for the war in South Africa was strong. Um, Wales was a small nation with a historic tradition of fighting for freedom, and Wales, like the Little Boer Republics, was a land of farmers. 
Mm. They express their Welshness in terms of mm. agriculture. Yeah. Um, um, K.O. Morgan, who's like a, a prominent, like early, like mid, I think mid 20th century Welsh historian, um, suggests that that's actually a myth. Modern Welsh history is that Wales, with its fellow feeling for small nations, was ardent in support of the Boers. In fact, the pro-Boers were in a minority in Wales as everywhere else. Um, Pro-Boer candidates were defeated, particularly in South Wales. Uh, Welsh pride in her colonial fighting units and records of pro-British victory celebrations in several localities suggest that the Welsh were actually happy that the British army had won. Um, So yeah, Wales takes its kind of position as a jewel in, in the crown of yeah. British imperialism um, so skip forward to the kind of the modern day mm. late, latter half of the 20th century um, after the war governments began to run down the coal industry um, employment levels dropped in other sectors such as agriculture uh, full employment was generally maintained by the uh, welfare state's expansion uh, into the steel industry and its use of regional policy instruments to force industrialists to locate new factories in Wales this all changed after 1979. Yep. Regional policy in- instruments were scrapped or downgraded amidst an avalanche of industrial clo- closures, while the nationalised industry of coal and steel shed tens of thousands of jobs. Um, having been established by the Welsh office in the 70s, quangos such as the Welsh Development Agency cleared land, built factories and attracted investment, but despite many successes, the scale of change proved impossible to offset fully. By the 1990s, only two steelworks were left in South Wales, and both of them were on the coast. The resources had run out, and only one coal mine remained working, and the many small works in the valleys had closed down. Which coal mine was that? Uh, it doesn't actually say. I did not see that. My uncle still working. Well, I think that, I mean, from when I kind of read, read up on this, it may have closed since then, because I seem to remember there was a BBC article about the last working coal mine in Wales closing. I remember my um, uncle was one of the ones that when they were given their redundancy money, they put their money together and bought the mine. Yeah. And then they mined yeah. it to completion and then sold the parts to a Polish mining firm. <laughs> and that's why my uncle Robert is richer than my dad, and it makes him very grumpy. <laughs> because what <Well, he>, Robert? <laughs> it, makes, it makes him very grumpy that he's you know he's throwing down the mine, got more money than me. He has a nicer car. Um, so yeah, you can see like the impact of not diversifying beyond one thing, yeah. whether they were allowed to or not, because mm. their capital outside of coal mining was largely in the hands of uh, yeah. English owners. Yeah. Um, how else you would know. you have made as much money? Yeah. Um, so, devolu- like obviously, through the 70s and into the 80s, you've got this resurgence of Welsh nationalism. Mm. Um, who was it? The Sons of Glendower? Um, oh, the which ones? Which terrorist group are you talking about? There's the Free Wales Army, yeah. who march through northern town- North Wales towns with um, German Shepherds on leads. <laughs> <laughs> um, that's Kyle Evans. That's- now, yeah, that was, that, that was a weird one, because that was formed from like, veterans of the utter disgusting stuff the British did in Malaya. Ah, right, so after look at the fifties and sixties. Yeah, and then um that's I think that I'm pretty certain that's where Kyle Evans comes from. That's yeah. like and yeah, they were quite rampant. Then yeah, yeah, I think you have the Sons of Glendower setting fire to holiday homes. Yeah. Um because, you know It's something you hadn't seen, like before you had Welshness being able to express in a political manner kind of through the trade unions. Yeah. And of course no proletariat, no trade unions. Yeah. Um, as you've seen in the kind of, the typical kind of outside impression of Wales now is one of kind of decline and uh, 
degradation. Like there's a really good uh, Gwyneth Williams, a uh, Welsh historian, uh, Welsh Marxist historian. There's a good clip on YouTube of him talking about uh, Wales becoming a, a land of museums. I could have done his Welsh accent because I've been listening to him all day. I could have done his very strong Welsh accent, but I didn't. If you hear the little waver in the middle of my voice there, that was me deciding starting to. to do a Welsh accent and then deciding not to. Um, there is that. There is. I'm pretty certain. Yeah, I've seen. I have seen. There are. Um, there are a couple. There's quite a few coal mine museums, slate yeah. mine museums. Yes, slate rather. mining mainly being in the north as well. Yeah, that's one of like their a few industries. Dog athlete and stuff like that. Yeah. That's why them. So a lot of their houses look very grim and austere because it's all slate. Mm. It looks kind of cool. It's why their gastro pubs are so <laughs> so prevalent. There's so much slate there. Why not build a gastro pub to put <laughs> three massive chips on and a tiny brioche bun burger? <laughs> so you've got kind of a, a rising kind of uh, discontent within Wales mm. that's focused increasingly in Welsh nationalist and frankly like it's getting towards violent measures yeah so you get to the 1990s and uh, a labor government comes in mm. labor has this historic connection with wales um and trade union and welsh trade unionism it's got that proud heritage that blair loved to fucking bring up whenever he wanted to deflect attention from the fact that he was betraying all of his <laughs> predecessors yep um so devolution kind of came up onto the onto the political radar seemed like a good way to head off the social unrest and elect- electoral instability of labor in Wales, mm. obviously the Celtic fringe generally provides Labour with a lot of MPs and a lot of votes yep. that they've been far too dependent on for a long time. Yeah, um, and it was their idea of kind of mitigating the effects, as kind of they tried to mitigate it with um, like gentrification in the north, yeah. things like that, turning it into a service sector rather than an industrial sector, retraining and yeah. that kind of thing. There are two problems with it. One, it basically treats. Uh, Wales as if it's another region so with the uh, Senate it seems from an outsider's perspective it seems what they've done is create a massive council yes with all of the attendant problems that we spoke of in the beginning with the local elections all of the kind of smaller problems and in fact because it's a devolved assembly you've got even bigger problems like the uh, thing about taking the um, toilets out of trains well yeah there's a there's a tradition in Wales, as opposed to like Scotland, the Scottish Parliament, if you offer them anything, they'll take it pretty much. Yeah. Um, with Welsh Labour, you offer them anything and they'll say no, mm. um, and specifically vote down. I mean, the comparison, the comparison in English Council would be, for instance, you make them responsible for housing, yeah, but not give them any money to do it, exactly, and not be able to control kind of um, uh, housing budgets and yeah. and how taxation. What, how taxation and what housing budgets are supposed to be built, yeah. Um, in Wales with the trains I was made aware of this today yeah. um, they're actually removing because they they're locking ca- the toilet doors they cannot afford to update the trains to comply with disability legislation coming in next year but they cannot afford to rip the toilets out so they're just going to keep them on there but lock it now this was not I was made aware of this later on yeah. that this was not a Welsh government decision um this was uh, an English government decision in that they have not given them the requisite funding yeah, in well, order they, to upgrade the rolling well, stock. transport infrastructure in Wales, it hasn't been devolved. So trains are England and Wales mm. and separate budget for Scotland. Yeah. Um, I can't remember. What's the name of the... It's the Barnet formula. Yeah. yeah. So, um, so they can't... So Theresa May cancelled the rail electrification plans <clears throat> yeah. in Wales because, you know, 
they don't need trains. Yeah. Um, and yet left the res- and yet the responsibility for that will fall on the Welsh government, definitely. Welsh Assembly. Um, but it was like they cancelled that on the same day they announced um, more high speed trains for England and better cross rail stuff. They for literally us in announced cross rail three or two, two. Um, on the same day yeah. as. Um, Cancelling the electrification. Yeah, which um, transport in Wales is desperately needed. Like, yeah. the, uh, the say there are <clears throat> there isn't much work outside of Cardiff, mm. um, and it takes a long time to get to Cardiff from yeah. places that aren't that far. Well, I mean, it leads into the kind of the second problem with devolution, which was the idea that the new Labour government had was we will replace all these industrial jobs with service economy jobs, shops, yeah. bars, that kind of thing. Yeah. Um, which you can see in the north would be more advantageous because it's reasonably easy to hop between from city to city in search of work. Yeah. Um, or easier. With Wales, uh, the way the transport infrastructure is, if you're not living within striking distance of a large town, basically Swansea, Cardiff, those kind of places. Newport. Newport. Yeah. Um, the population can't access those jobs. No. Um, you also can't access um, a market for those jobs because it's supposed to be for the population themselves. Yeah. Um, in order to use those shops and those like bowling alleys and, yeah. and and stuff like that, so you've got them applying the same principle to the north as they did to uh, to Wales as they did to the north. Yeah. With diminishing results, mm-hmm. you know, there's higher unemployment. There's less less of a way to like link up. The areas that have employment and that need employment. Yeah. You know? Um, and like, yeah, there's a kind of. There's an acceptance of the Welsh identity, hmm. but in a similar way to the way some English people view the Irish identity, it's a very um it's a very 1950s view of it. So it's all like, you know, like mines and boxing clubs and working men's clubs. Yeah. Very masculine oriented. Yeah, um, <clears throat> a very particular kind of thing. Like, did you you read that Manic Street Preachers interview where they talked about Corbyn? Um, so one of the things they say in that interview, Maybe so angry, which um, kind of like chimes with this. Um, when they're talking about Corbyn, they say, "I don't think he understands what makes the working classes outside of London, and that is just hardcore industries. We've operated at our optimum as people when jobs give us meaning, and in the post-industrial hinterlands, he doesn't understand that. I remember somebody at a meeting down in South Wales, an old guy, ex-miner, wanted his son to have a proper, real blue-collar job, and he was saying, "What do you expect us to do, Mr. Corbyn? Make fucking love spoons out of hemp?" And it's like. That's it, it's a, oh, but you see Jimmy how that it's it's like an fuck it's an I expected better from like the yeah. wire but not Jimmy Bradford. It's an it's a, like an authenticrat thing from especially like yeah. middle class and upper class commentators about def- again defining the nature of Wales almost from the outside mm. and not reflecting how how Wales as as they haven't had a proper job in a yeah. million years yeah. And it's uh, it, to be honest, it's a continuing of like a twentieth century like narration of Wales as. There's a binary between, as we mentioned before, this rural Welsh-speaking, old-fashioned, like non-conform, like Chapel Wales. Yeah. And I didn't do a Welsh accent there. Chapel Wales. <laughs> and uh, <clears throat> a Southern Wales working-class mm. kind of proletarian um, image of, yeah. of of Welshness. Um, South Wales is positioned as kind of cosmopolitan and progressive position, <laughs> comparatively. Yeah. Compared to the kind of 
conservative, real. conservative parochial kind of rural regions. Um, and of course, it has well suffers from all the other kind of problems of being in a kind of post-industrial late capitalism phase. So, the obsession with drawing in um, uh, investment from outside. Oh, yeah, God, um, it's disgusting. There was some story about uh, there was a Welsh. Um, I think it was like a solar panel or a, some kind of other environmental scheme that a Welsh entrepreneur proposed. <clears throat> looked for funding from the Welsh government, uh, was denied it, and then a couple of years later they invited Chinese investors to do exactly the same scheme <laughs> because they have to be seen to be open for business yeah. in that same way. That's not distinctively Welsh, but no, I think just... the Welsh response to it yeah. by design is much more stymied and much more vulnerable to mm. kind of abuse. Mm. You know what I mean? Latterly, kind of sociologists and historians have um, looked at Wales and decided there's kind of not one Wales, but three. Alfred Zimmern, uh, in 1921, decided there was the archetypal Welsh Wales, there was industrial American Wales, and upper-class English Wales. Each represented different parts of the country in different traditions. In 1985, political analyst Dennis Balsam proposed a similar three Wales model. Balsam's regions were the Welsh-speaking heartland of the North and West, Ifro Cymraeg, there we go. Uh, a consciously Welsh but not Welsh-speaking Welsh Wales in the valleys and a more ambivalent British Wales making up the remainder, largely in the east and along the south coast. Um, Welsh language today yeah. is a weird one. I had to read several studies of like the preponderance of the Welsh language as one of the twin pillars of Welshness and yeah. how it's expressed. Um, there's some stuff in the Open University about like the number of Welsh speakers and their class. Um what evidence there is, they quote, I quote, what evidence there is suggests there's some advantage for those who are not Welsh by birth. From data in the 1991 census, it can be showed that 6.2% of those born outside Wales are employed in professions, compared with 2.2% of non-Welsh speaking people born in Wales and 3.5% of Welsh speakers. That is, they're almost three times more likely to be in the top jobs than Welsh people who do not speak Welsh and twice as likely, twice as likely to be so than Welsh speakers. Um... In the 2011 census, it shows that Welsh speakers are not represent, uh, and those who do not speak Welsh are represented in identical proportions in higher managerial and administrative professions, and that 23% of Welsh speakers and only 18.7 of those who cannot speak Welsh are found in the next category down, like lower managerial yeah. occupations. At the other end of the socio-economic table, the converse is found, with those who cannot speak Welsh being better represented among the semi-routine occupations, routine occupations, and among the never-worked and long-term employed. So there is some truth that there's a kind of Welsh-speaking middle class. Mm. They have some cultural capital with the fact that they speak Welsh, mm. whereas the working class and kind of unemployed generally do not speak Welsh, mm. like, more often than not. Yeah, it's like, um, like in... Cardiff, the some of the Welsh speaking schools are the the better schools. Yeah, it's, the, it was one of was the set up at the right well, time. I mean, one of one of the projects through the kind of yeah the latter half of the twentieth century mm. was the setting up of of Welsh speaking schools as mm. the kind of blanket ban almost of the British state kind of loosened. Yeah, um, it's kind of expressed as like a regional, like with the with Labour governments, it's expressed as like a it's a regional version and a very a very strong socialist. Yeah, uh, like thing in order that a, a strong socialist thing to do to bring everybody together under the rubric of their kind of multi multi-faceted identities yeah. you know um so you end up with like i think desolation radio have talked a little about this like 
as with um, a lot of regions, there's like a hierarchy of, of Welshness, a hierarchy of identity, yeah. as opposed to like being more Welsh or more English. Mm. Um, so there's kind of like a, there's a, there's a problem with setting up the scenario where Wales is always being kind of exploited from outside because it kind of ignores the idea that there were Welsh people kind of complicit and even down the social scale there's not like a a general kind of Welsh like oppression of the poorer Welsh working class because they do participate in imperialism yeah like enthusiastically not not yeah. just because they're being duped but because they have positive like material benefits yeah. from that kind of thing as you know they reflected to win and make some money yeah yeah um kind of with a modern with not modern identity like with modern identity politics especially within britishness it's possible to be kind of a, a welshman a, a welsh speaker a british patriot a worker a, a swansea a south Walian. these are all kind of different identities yeah they don't quite capture kind of welshness within one thing which i suppose is a is a good thing but it does kind of mean that the hegemony of of the British state is still unchallenged because there's no proper oppositional, um, cultural kind of reason to oppose the British state. Do you mm. know what I mean? I kind of liken it when I was like looking through this stuff. I was kind of trying to liken it to if Wales was another region, like if it was another region like Yorkshire, which has this strong regional identity. Yet the idea of Yorkshire seceding from the UK yeah. is far like far less yeah. likely than wales yeah and like what is it about what, what do you what do you think like makes wales kind of this halfway house between somewhere like yorkshire and somewhere like ireland where the oppositional identity to englishness and britishness is so strong that they manage to secede entirely yorkshire's never going to secede and wales only kind of rests in the middle the split in it in half hmm. is a good one <laughs> like yeah how could you the, the similarity between like i've been to different places in wales and say um like i well, took you on holiday we went to um Aberiron. oh yeah Aberiron yeah. has yeah. a very different feel to um Kumbar. yes yeah. very different they might as well be completely different places like yeah. countries mm. um and it just gets more the further you spread out yeah um, so there's that lack of solidarity um, that's specific. It, it feels it feels designed. Mm-hmm. Um, so you can't. So how would you fight against it? There is that yeah. the thing that makes it more of a, a more of a distinct place than somewhere like Yorkshire mm-hmm. is the economic and racial divide. Yeah, that was put upon them. Mm. You know, you have things like the Blue Books <clears throat> saying that there are distinct people that are yeah. savage and wrong. So, like, being defined almost by the English themselves. Yeah. Well, my Welshness was... Things that defined my Welshness are things like teachers when we were at school. Mm. Very much defining it for me. Mm. Um, but there was there isn't, like, a trophy... Like the last time there was, like, genuine... Apart from minor strike... Yeah. The violence from the British state, like the last, the time for that was like would be murder. Well, the interesting thing about that is as well that that's obviously a, uh, a like the the minor strike in the eighties, spread across kind of Nottingham, uh, Lancashire, yeah. all the all the mining regions, and yeah. kind of 
the way the Labour government set up its relationship to the trade unions kind of drew Wales into the mm. union. But it's like another, it's like Gramscian hegemony again. Yeah. It's drawing them into a reason to be part of a larger British socialism. This it still perpetuates the same kind of geographical and like political model. Yeah. There's mm. also that weird thing of like um, the different feeling towards English. Like in North Wales, you have this very much, there's North and West Wales, you have this, yeah. the British state takes away our language, takes away our culture. Yeah. Um, whereas, like, my aunties, the British state did have a fan. Yeah. And it's that kind of thing. Mm. There's a, a different reasons to be angry. Yeah. Whereas Ireland is a pla- is like a one whole place with yeah. one whole, this is the thing that's a bit oppressing us, let's fight against the thing that's oppressing yeah. us type thing. Because, I mean, it can't just be geographical kind of factors. I mean, mm. the border between England and Wales... Um, it's defined, obviously, it's been yeah. defined since, as we mentioned, like the fifteen hundreds, and like the border towns are <clears> very <throat> quite English. Yeah, well, they vote UKIP. Yeah, yeah, it's a it's a weird one. I mean, I suppose Britishness makes it, along with the kind of imperial imperial relationship, Britishness makes it easy to accommodate all those different identities. Mm. Also, so that's how happy they are to be in the army. Yeah, in general, which is it's a big thing. I think in general, the Welsh like the British army more than they like the British state. Yeah. Um, they almost see it as a separate thing. Yeah. Um, but that is stuff that makes me so angry. Like the thing, um, the latest leader of the of um, the latest leader of of Welsh Labour, mm. um, being that woman from Bolton who's going to commute. <laughs> it's things like that which just and that's not that doesn't seem to be seen as a problem. Um, not by Welsh Labour. Yeah. <laughs> it's seen as a problem by other people. Um, I can't see how. I can't like in the locals. I any Welsh person, anyone in Wales who votes Labour is an idiot. Yeah, I from what I've listened to on Desolation there's, Radio, there's been like a hundred like years of, of of Labour <clears throat> in Wales, and that the last hundred years have not been good. They've taken them for granted because, to a certain extent, they are they see themselves as the British agent in yeah. like. Admittedly, I think it was probably maybe a slightly more positive thing during the years when like socialism was kind of mm. a thing, mm. but. It's still, uh, it's not. It doesn't have to be coercive. Yeah. I think that's the main problem with like the internal colonial thesis. Like mm. our idea of imperial violence mm. is so set on a very particular oppressed, oppressive yeah. kind of binary. It ignores all of the kind of subtle ways that, yeah. like you, could, like Wales becoming an internal colony in and of itself. So yeah. you've got the South Wales as the core, like Cardiff as the core, yeah. and the rest of Wales just there to kind of. Feed it with men and materials yeah. and, and money and that. Whereas kind now of thing. the main use that the British state seems to have for Wales is soldiers mm. and votes. It's just like whenever, whenever like a proper Welsh nationalist comes and kind of comes on BBC News or whatever. When is there a Welsh nationalist on BBC News? <laughs> uh, yeah, on the rare occasions yeah. that it happens, there's this attitude of, uh, well, yeah, you fueled the empire with coal you fueled the industrial revolution you provided us with soldiers uh but what have you done for me lately <laughs> yeah yeah <laughs> which seems a bit ungrateful at the very least but um, <laughs> what else can you expect from the british state you know? yeah there's that weird thing it's um like as a socialist i do think that essentially internationalist i think that generally yeah. we sh- we all do better together mm. that being said the british state isn't a socialist state no and it's down even to, when it was a socialist state, yeah. it was barely a socialist. It and it's down omitted to, several important socialist. <laughs> uh, and now it's down to facets. It's almost down to just it's damage mitigation. Yeah. Um, 
if Wales carry on being as it is, it's just going to get worse. Mm. It's just going to get worse and worse and worse. And that's yeah, that's like the main reason I can think of for a world, an independent Wales. <laughs> so they don't get it worse. <laughs> I always end up with that attitude of anybody who wants to separate from the British state, anyone who wants to give the British, British state a little shock in the middle of the night mm. is welcome. In yes, yeah, it'd be very nice. Oh, yeah. It'd be so good if it I just want a unified Ireland and Scotland to leave. Just watching Tories just freak out. Yeah, it's delightful. Be glorious. And the Labour Party freak out as well, though. Yeah. But, but uh, Scotland and Ireland, we'll be talking about next week, I think. Yes, yeah. yes we will. So, uh, you can subscribe to us on iTunes. You can follow us at WDTATW underscore podcast. You can follow me at BM Bergamo and follow Hugh at Tanner Smashing. And uh, I went a whole episode without doing a Welsh accent. So, uh, <laughs> yeah. Men of Harlem. <laughs> 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 oh, oh, you. No, I won't do it again. <laughs> you don't, but... <laughs> Bye! <laughs> about the fighting game.